Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is... Almost bound to focus on space. Hello, it's another award-winning Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. This time we visit the Crazy Ideas Lab at NASA. We'll hear from some of the women known as Astro Girls who are hoping to become an astronaut in the National Space Challenge. And a special in-depth interview with Britain's first official astronaut, Tim Peake. Meanwhile, on Mars, the Curiosity rover is getting ready for a five-mile trundle to the base of a Martian mountain called Mount Sharp. Curiosity is the most sophisticated rover ever built, but it's still, well, a traditional rover, essentially a big box on wheels. But robot explorers don't have to look like that. At NASA Ames in Silicon Valley, California, Vitus Sun Spiral and Adrian Agagino are developing a new type of rover. The project is part of what Vitus calls NASA's Crazy Ideas program, and they're basing their design on a children's tensegrity toy, a bundle of beads, rods and cords. A tensegrity system is a tension network. It's a system where, unlike our um, buildings where everything is held together rigidly, it's a system where everything is held together in tension. Cables, a network of cables that holds rods. You often may have seen examples of artwork that looks like this, where it's just kind of crazy, weird bars floating in space. But the core components are very simple. They're just rods and cables connected together, and rods never connect to rods, cables never connect to cables. It's this interplay. But their interplay of these simple components are very complex. The interaction's complex. The movement's complex. They're very interesting. Now, I think we've got one here. This is, looks like a, a child's toy. Yeah, actually, it, it is. It is a child's toy, actually. And the reason toys are, are excellent use of it integrity is they're flexible. A child can hit themselves in the head with it, and they won't hurt each other. But that happens to be great for what we want. We want things that are non-damaging and are very robust. So this is what? Um, six rods uh, with a little ball at the end of each rod, and then the rods are connected together with these, this elastic. Essentially, yeah. So, so these are the compression components, and these are the tensile components. Okay, so how would this work in practice? Can I, if I drop this on the floor, I suppose, to demonstrate okay, it? Okay, throw it on the floor, not just drop. Okay, okay so it, it dropped on the floor, it gets bounced. The There's no damage. Yeah, no, I could and, let me throw it a bit harder yeah, on the floor. Harder. Oh, when you yeah. think about what's happening in a bounce, it's absorbing energy, it's going down, it's releasing energy, it's going up. And it doesn't break because it's distributed. It's not one little arm joint that's hitting the ground and then having to resist that and breaking. So you'd build a robot like that. Mm-hmm. So you'd build, I mean, like a, a child's toy when it can, it can rattle it. Yeah. With, I suppose, these rods and then at the end, I don't know, nodes and then connect, connected by the equivalent of, of, of elastic. We could then add actuators to move and change the lengths of those cables. 
the best way to do that is part of the research we're going to be doing over the next year. There's a variety of different options on how to do it, including things like twisting the cables to make them shorter and longer, which turns out to be exactly how your muscles work. Your muscles actually are bundles of twisted cables, and they twist and untwist as they get shorter and longer. With that, you get the ability to change the shape of it, too. You can take it from com- small, compressed sizes, which are good for launching into space, to sort of fully deployed versions of it. And then once you've landed, you can shorten and lengthen the cables and cause the whole thing to roll and move around or to place sensors in a particular place if you want to take a measurement of a rock, for instance. Now, you actually have behind you on the wall a poster of... Mars exploration rover mm-hmm. from 2003. That's traditional rover. So you've got, what, six wheels, yeah. uh, solar panels, stalk with eyes. This is so completely different. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and one of the things, for instance, when you looked at uh, the MAR rover, it required an airbag when it landed. And that's a big system. I mean, it's not just a sack of air that's around it. it it's a whole, there's a whole holding platform in it and, you know, the airbags and the explosives to make that go. And then once that's all done, you use it once and the rover has landed, you then have to have this whole mobility system, these wheels and all the motors to uh, control it. And they're, they're heavy and powerful. You also have the separate camera arms. I mean, every single little component here has to be separate. And the other thing is, look at that. Drop it 30 feet. Do, do you think it's going to be very happy at the end? <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, and where are you looking at going? I mean, I appreciate this is early stages. You are working with a child's toy and some computer simulations at the yeah. moment. But, I mean, what sort of planets, what sort of moons are you looking at? Well, as an initial place just to give us some, some grounding and a concept, we're going to design a mission to Titan because there's a good amount of atmosphere there that's going to help, you know, help it descend. And, uh, and there's really interesting science to be done there, one where we have to be able to have a very robust uh, autonomous system to explore Titan because we can't see the surface. And, and will this ever actually happen? I mean, absolutely. I can't say exactly what the future is going to hold, but you know, I've been around the robotics industry long enough doing research for you know, a decade or two here, and things change over time. You, you just have to throw yourself at a vision and make progress and be successful at exploring the ideas, and anything's possible. It's just like Silicon Valley and all the startups here. You've you got to start with a couple kids in a garage, and eventually, next thing you know, you have your next Google. So you're the equivalent to the couple of kids in the garage. Exactly. Isn't that great? Like uh, that's Adrian Agogino, and you also heard from uh, Vitus Sunspiral. Is that a real It science? is a real name. Uh, he definitely has the best science name ever. And I was talking to them at NASA Ames in California. What, what a cool idea that is. I like the fact that they are thinking that expression out of the box. I don't even think they've seen a box. They are so far out. But you can see when he was explaining about the muscles and the cables, I sort of found myself nodding and thinking, yeah, that, that makes sense. It's well, like it, it's looking for other borrowing from biology. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Which is a very hot topic at the moment as well. And if you do eventually see a rover on Titan that moves like that, one of these sort of robots, you heard it here first. Excellent, excellent. And I'll be travelling to the States again in a couple of weeks to the Aspen Ideas Festival. So if you like the podcast, do come along for a chat. If you don't, then, you know, just ignore me. Uh, And in one of our future Space Boffins podcasts, I'll be reporting from the equally glamorous Glasgow, where they're working on small satellites and very big science.
Four years ago, the European Space Agency announced that a Brit would join their astronaut corps for the first time. Major Tim Peake qualified as an astronaut a year later, and he's been waiting for a mission ever since. But not for any longer. On May the 17th, it was announced that Major Tim will fly to the International Space Station in 2015. News that was greeted with refreshing enthusiasm in the British media and even made the cover of Private Eye. Now, there have been interviews with Tim before, including on our podcast, but only short TV and radio ones. So the Space Boffins podcast is delighted to bring you this in-depth conversation with Tim, which began by me asking him, what was he doing when he heard the news? I was actually, sounds very cheesy, but I was actually in between Apache sorties uh, flying with the British Army. And my boss, Frank Devin, uh, said, give me a call. And he told me over the phone and said, uh, you've been assigned to the 2015 long duration mission. So I was absolutely thrilled. Right. The training then. What are you going to be doing between now and 2015? There's a lot to do. I have to become uh, trained to a higher level than I already am on the American segment. So that's the American laboratory, the European laboratory and the Japanese laboratory. I also have to be trained on the Russian segment. And in addition to that, the Canadian robotic arm. I have to go to to Canada and become uh, more highly qualified on that. What about the training you've done so far, particularly the training in caves, which was simulating being on an asteroid? Is that all redundant now? Not at all. I mean, that training all stays with you. And I I learned some really valuable lessons during that caving expedition. Seven days living underground with a mixture of astronauts from various different nationalities. And we actually simulated a mission, a space mission during that caving trip. We were doing real scientific research. In fact, we found new microbiological life forms in this cave in Sardinia, which was, was excellent. We were doing true exploration and also we were doing cave photography, which is clearly an important part of an astronaut's role as well. And in addition to that, of course the main point of living in a cave was to explore those psychosocial skills of interaction decision making leadership followership etc so that when you become this international crew on board the station you're able to work together as a team much better the language of the international crew is, is bound because of the nature of the Soyuz and the space station to include Russian. How is your Russian? What, what level are you at at the moment? Well, officially, it's intermediate mid was the level that I was classified at my, my last exam. I'll need to do that exam again in the near future. And the Russian language lessons will continue right up until launch. It's clearly a very important part of our job is to be able to converse in Russian, and uh, especially during the Soyuz launch and recovery. And if the opportunity arose to do a Russian spacewalk, that would all be purely dealt with in Russian. It's a long duration space mission. Do you know at this stage already um, what the five months is likely to include? Not in terms of specific science activities, no, it's too early to tell. It gets firmed up within about 12 months prior to the mission. But clearly the the space station has got fixed payloads on board in terms of the science laboratories, and that's a biological laboratory, fluid physics, material science, human physiology, medical research. So there will be a a mix of experiments in, in those kind of areas. Having um, our first British official astronaut is going to be a huge boost for STEM subjects, people wanting to study science, technology, engineering, maths. What's your science background? Do you have a science background or is this something that's new to you? My science background is at A-level in maths, physics and chemistry. And oh, that's pretty good. Which, <laughs> which is OK. Yes, I, I Clearly, I did have an interest in yeah. it. It wasn't art and history and languages. It was, it was very science sort of based. Um, and then I had a big decision to 
to make because I was going to go to Manchester University to study aeronautical engineering, but the Army Air Corps had offered me a place at Sandhurst for, um, for to go on to do pilot training. And at that time, pilot training, as it is today, is quite a long, drawn-out process. So I decided that it was better to, to get on with that and uh, leave school after A-levels, go to Sandhurst. And I ended up doing my degree, my Bachelor of Science in Flight Dynamics. I did that later in life whilst I was a test pilot. Do you think your background as a pilot has, has helped you to, to where you are today? Absolutely. I mean, that really, it was my background as a pilot that gave me the skills and qualifications when the European Space Agency had their selection process. And uh, I was a, a pilot then with just over 3,000 hours as a qualified test pilot and a degree. But it, I think it was really the, the fact of my experience as a pilot that helped with the application process. And it's quite a traditional old-fashioned route in a way. You know, the right stuff days, That was always there were always test pilots. Did you want to be an astronaut then right from the beginning? Was that always at the back of your mind or did the idea not come until later? It wasn't really at the back of my mind purely because the opportunities weren't there and so I, I don't think a lot of people in the UK didn't think that they could become an astronaut unless, as like Michael Fole, Nick Patrick and Piers Sellers, unless you were to, to move over to NASA, in which case you did have the opportunity. So as soon as I saw the European Space Agency open up their selection process in 2008, including UK nationals, and I had the right qualifications at the right time, um, that's when I jumped on board. Now, a lot has been made of the amount of money that's, that's effectively behind you, £60 million. What's in it for the UK? Well, there's so much in it for the UK. I mean, it's a relatively modest investment, and we're going to get a huge return. We currently get about a four-to-one return on all the money that the UK pays into the European Space Agency. Now, in terms of science, this uh, £16 million meant that we joined the ELIPS programme, which is the International Space Station Science Programme. So British scientists are now able to propose... British-led experiments in microgravity and hopefully we're going to see some of those on the board the International Space Station. So it's opened up the door, if you like, to the whole British science community to start studying microgravity research. In addition to that, it's opened up the door for UK industry to compete for bids uh, and to actually be awarded contracts by the space agency. And we have a, a thriving space industry, so there's many different contracts that can be awarded. And I think possibly more importantly than that, it's an inspiration to our, our younger generation of scientists and engineers that science is exciting, space is exciting, and you have these opportunities available to you. Commander Chris Hadfield has sort of upped the game on the inspirational aspect of of being an astronaut. Does this put an enormous amount of pressure on you to be sort of all singing, all dancing, performance, uh, social media expert, etc.? It, it does put a certain amount of pressure on, yes, <laughs> without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, but having said that, he has just done a fantastic job and in, in many respects we are just you know in this sort of astronaut community in the human spaceflight community we're extremely grateful for the fact that he has done such a good job not just in his educational outreach and, and reaching out to the general public and and getting them to enthuse again about human spaceflight and uh, from viewing their planet from the pictures and from watching him do the scientific experiments but also as a commander of the space station he did a fantastic job in terms of uh, the activities that were performed the amount of science that they performed during that increment. He certainly has set the bar very high, but uh, you know, it's, I, I thrive on the challenge, so I will look forward to it. Now, it's already been reported that you're, you're not much of a singer or it's not your forte and uh, that you're probably not taking your guitar. But I had read that before Commander Hadfield went up into space that you two did have a jamming session. Now, 
I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall on that. But what did you actually play? Give us an insight into into what went on there. It was a wonderful night in GCTC, the Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Centre in Star City, Moscow. And it just so happened that I was there with my European colleagues, Toma Pesquet, Luca Palmitano, who also play the guitar. Chris Hadfield was there with Sonny Williams and Aki Hoshidi. And Sonny and Aki were shortly due to launch in the Soyuz. And so uh, we picked up the guitars and we just had an evening of, of impromptu playing. Uh, so it was wonderful. We ended what type up... of music? Well, the funny thing is that uh, Sonny Williams actually said that you have the opportunity when you're sat in the Soyuz and waiting for launch to have some music played of your choice. And so she put down her iPad and said, right, guys, play something. I'm going to record it. And this is what I'm going to have piped into the Soyuz whilst I'm waiting. So we played Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. With the shuttle no longer in, in existence, uh, for, for many ESA astronauts now, the sort of days of multiple trips are sort of gone. And this may well be your one mission. What happens to an ESA astronaut once they've gone up and they've done their mission and perhaps there is no more potential to go back up again? Well, there's, there's two points on that. First thing is when I was selected, Britain didn't pay into the human space flight. We had six astronauts, but we only had five flight opportunities, and the last one of those was in 2019, and there was no guarantee that I would even have a slot. I'm now sitting here, and I'm flying in 2015 on a long duration, and all six of us will have flown by 2017, and we still have a, an ESA flight in 2019. I love the more. optimism, yeah. So uh, I would certainly say that there is a potential for more flight opportunities, but the other part of your question is, what do you do when you get back? Well, something that we do as European astronauts is we also train, they train our management skills so that, for example, my direct boss, head of the astronaut centre, is Frank Devin, who commanded the space station in 2009, and the director of human spaceflight is Thomas Reiter, who is a very experienced, the most experienced European astronaut in terms of time in space. So you can see that astronauts fulfil management roles throughout the European Space Agency, and um, of course, uh, people like Christoph Fuglsang have gone back into the science division of ESA as well. So there are a plethora of different avenues within the space agency that you can take after you've flown. Now, I know that you're aware that there's a national space challenge going on at the moment around around the world and that um, I'm one of the 45 women in the UK that's got through to the next round. What advice would you give me for the physical and mental challenge that's happening in July in London? I think for the, the physical and mental challenge, probably what people are looking at is your ability, not necessarily just to perform these activities, but actually your ability to perform them in a group. I'm sure it won't be it won't be something that's done on an individual level. I'm sure these will be team events. And I think that the the more important aspect is actually the how you get on with people, how you interact, um, how you do your decision making. There are probably going to be you know, challenges involved in in these these skills and teamwork. And uh, I think that's actually the more important element to focus on is good team skills. I find that even more worrying because I was once refused VSO, voluntary service overseas, because I took charge <laughs> and ignored everyone else like a dictator. <laughs> Although they did say it was the fastest time ever that yeah. a, a, a task had been done. So it was a sort of win-lose situation yeah. there. But take, I'm taking charge is a good thing. And, you know, you do need, you do need strong leaders, but the, the, the best person is someone who can be a strong leader when it's required, but then can switch role to being a great follower. Uh, and that's something that we kind of practice during these cave expeditions and things like that, this switching between leadership followership. So mm. at least you've got the good leadership skills. Good, I'm glad. So between now and... And 
2015, you've got a lot of work to do. Physically fit, is that sort of an automatic part of, of your training that you're expected to do a certain amount of exercise each week? Yes, we are expected to do a certain amount of exercise and um, we also sort of target specific areas in terms of uh, endurance training, good cardiovascular, um, good strength training for EVA, which is the space walking. And EVA uses really strange muscle groups because the suit isn't particularly well ergonomically designed to suit the human body. So many of the major muscle groups in EVA, you can't use them to the full extent and you end up using very small muscles in your shoulders, for example, that you wouldn't normally use. So we end up doing doing strange exercises in the gym to try and build up and target those specific muscle groups so that we don't have injuries during EVA. Um, And we'll be monitored, our fitness training will be monitored throughout the next two and a half years and also during spaceflight and post-flight so that that data can all be analysed to see if there are any changes, how we performed before, during and after the mission. ESA astronaut Tim Peake. Also in Private Eye, there's on the cover... He's on the cover, although it's it's not a dig at him, it's a dig at David Cameron. Inside on the letters page, there is a, a lookalike picture of Tim Peake next to Dan Dare, pilot of Ooh, the future. How appropriate. Yes, well, I was thinking with that um, that Apache mission, he was in the helicopter and stuff, that he is, he isn't, isn't he? He is Dan Dare, he is pilot of the future. Yeah, and he's a genuinely nice guy. He always remembers who we are he was always like oh say hi to Richard for me and so and I like that about people because you and I have interviewed enough sort of fairly well-known people to know who's being genuine and who's not and who's professionally good and who's not and he's just nice isn't he yes he's, when he's it comes professional and he's nice mm, I think. Uh, yes I think when it comes to astronauts some are nicer than others <laughs> and we won't we won't be saying which are nicer than others on the shame. podcast. But yeah. if anybody comes up to you at the Aspen Ideas Festival, I will tell you, you will who tell are nicer than others in, in, in no uncertain terms. That's right. Yes, you sort of spill the beans. This is the uh, Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists and supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium (ABSL) and with a grant from the UK Space Agency. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Space Boffins. We're also going to sort out a blog very soon. Details to follow on the aforementioned social media sites. 50 years ago, on the 16th of June, 1968, history was made. The first woman flies in space, cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova. In her 48 orbits around the Earth, Tereshkova tallies more flight time in space than all the Mercury astronauts combined. So as a tribute to all the women who have been in space or who want to go into space, we thought we'd hear from a few of the 45 women out of 87,000 entrants in the UK and Ireland who got through into the next stage of the National Space Challenge. And this is this global competition we featured before on the podcast run by Lynx or Axe in the States with the prize of a trip into space. My name's Leah Harlow. I'm a musician songwriter. I'd like to go into space to experience the dark sky, the depthness of space over the atmosphere, and see the stars that we can't see from the planet Earth. Maybe this experience would also inspire me to write and record a song for outer space. My name is Callie Dora, and I'm a literature student from the north of Scotland. I want to go to space because I believe very strongly in pushing limits, both personally and for mankind as a whole. Hi, I'm Julian. I'm a 20-year-old physics and astrophysics student at the University of Sheffield and I want to go to space. 
it'd be the most significant thing anyone could ever do with their life and it would just be so amazing to see the coach of the earth and experience zero gravity and do all the training for it as well. My name is Kate Artless Gray, but everybody knows me as Space Kate because I dream of going to space, mainly because I think it's the ultimate adventure. It's a great exploration, some place that not many people have gone, and I'd love to be able to go along and use some of my social media and journalism skills to tell that story and bring space alive to more people. Hi there, my name is Tabitha Rose. I'm from Australia, but I travel as a photographer between Denmark and South Africa. The reason I signed up to the Lynx Apollo Challenge is because I have always been fascinated by the universe. I was especially interested in the moon and wanted to be the first female on the moon. I'm so grateful to all of the people who voted for me and got me to the top female in Britain and Ireland. I know it sounds a little crazy when someone asks you what you want to do with your life and you say, go to the moon but I'm now one big step closer to my dream. And thanks to musician and astro girl Leah for letting us use her composition, My Angel, to accompany their stories. Good luck to everyone who's taking part in the National Space Challenge in London on the weekend of the 13th, 14th, I think it is, of July. What do you mean you think it is? You I know it is. You're, know. One of, you're one of those women. <laughs> no, That's I, what you didn't, you didn't mention up today. You are one of these I know. These when women. I said I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure whether it's the 14th, 15th. Anyway, it's, it's mid-July. I am one of those women and I'm absolutely delighted. I'm sure it's in a large part as a result of podcast listeners uh, voting as well as friends, family and anyone who I was shameless enough to try and get to vote for me and, and that, that did count for quite a few. So just talk through the, the challenge so far. So you had this online vote. The social media sort of see how many votes you can get through Facebook or, or on their effectively or wherever and that was to get into the top 200. There and were that, another that 50 in... through a, a, a supermarket competition, so 250 in total from UK and Ireland. And that was in countries around the world? Absolutely, yeah. There are 22 spaces up for grabs, so one of them will be from, from the UK and Ireland. And now we're supposed to be, originally we were told it was this physical and mental challenge, and then I got the email through just a few days ago, and um, it listed a, a series, it said it would be a series of knockout rounds and the first one is an inflatable assault course, <laughs> which I just had these visions of an old British uh, It's a Knockout competition, or more recently, Total Wipeout, with me as the comedian Miranda sort of flailing around hopelessly, sort of falling around. So It's I, comedy gold. It is, it is comedy. <laughs> it will be comedy gold if anybody's watching me. I'm, I'm taking part on the Sunday. I, They've divided it into 125 on the Saturday and I'm on, on the Sunday. So, yes, anyone, you are allowed um, to take two people, I think, or one uh, person with you to see it. It's in front of a live audience. So if you see a woman flailing badly on her back like some sort of beetle with legs waving in the air, just spare a thought for me and just shout, go Sue, go Space Boffin or something like that. Do you think they were surprised at the number of women who, who've taken part? They've had to rethink somewhat and they've also they reworded how it is on the website. I thought there that have, was quite interesting. Yeah, and, and it's great. You know, this is the year 50th anniversary of the first woman in space and it, it it's great to see that there were you know there were enough indignant women myself included and um particularly kate oculus gray you know actually spearheading this come on you can't 
do this. You can't ignore the number of women who are interested in it. And actually, as a result, I suspect, of the the campaign and bringing it to people's attention, about a month before the competition closed, that first round closed, there were only about 16 women in the top 200. Well, now, okay, 45 isn't still isn't that much out of 250 to, to get to this stage, but that's an awful lot more. That's more than double the amount, and I suspect that that campaign by Astro Girls has really helped. So I'm delighted with that. I think we're doing it for Valentina. We're doing it for all the other women who do have these dreams, myself included. Sadly, I... I Oh, I wish I was. I wish I would be one of the ones to go. But me in an inflatable assault course, I'll give it my all. But I suspect my all might not be good enough. If you don't get through. Yeah. If, yeah. It costs $95,000 to get a, a seat in the X-Core Link space plane, which is what this is ultimately for. Yeah. Are you obviously going to save not for up? those that win. Yeah. No, not obviously not for those that win. But if you couldn't, if you don't win... And would you buy? Would you buy a seat? Would, would you save up? We, do we need is... some sort of send Sue into space campaign and, yes. and raise money on one oh, of these yeah, you, you uh, these the... websites? These, oh, um... yeah, crowdfunding. Yeah, crowdfunding. Um, I'd have to have won the lottery, I think, to 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 spend that much. We we haven't got that money spare. We've barely got ninety five pounds spare. Let alone ninety five thousand. Yeah, I think a lottery win. I would. I absolutely would. Well, we, we could crowdfund you into space. Crowdfund me. Mm. That, that would be good. I wonder whether people would think that would be would be Selfish. enough of a reason. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, people dying across the world, starving, and I'm thinking, Send give me Sue money. Into space. Me yeah, money. well, we'll see. I want to have a thrill. But, uh, yeah, if it was my own money and I had had enough, I yeah, I would, I, I would think that would be money, money well spent. Well, you may have recognised another space boffin regular, Kate Arkless Gray, among those voices. And in our last podcast, we heard how her team progressed to the final round of the International Space Apps Challenge. Now, their app called T-10 is designed to help astronauts take photos from space by mixing space station location data with real-time weather information so that those astronauts can get a T-10 alarm when it's going to be clear to take a great shot over their selected locations. Well, even better news we got from Kate Arkless Gray about what happened next. So the International Space Apps Challenge, it turned out to be the biggest hackathon, I think, in the world. And we won the London round. And then from that, we moved on to the international round. And there were four categories, main categories that you could win. And then there was also a People's Choice Award, which I was thinking that maybe... You know, if we got a few people on our side and everyone seemed to like the app, maybe we had a, a chance of winning that. But I couldn't believe it. We actually won one of the four main categories. We won the most inspiring app. And I was sitting there in my work induction, listening to a talk on data protection when I found out, trying not to squeak, try, trying to sit still and not be like, oh, my goodness, we won, we won. Well, it's a tremendous achievement. It's And, and it was a group of you, wasn't it? It's just four of us. So it's myself, who's crazy about space and had an idea. Then there was a chap who's very good with databases and data and, and that kind of thing called Joao Nevers. And I met him actually when I went to see the Aurora with Issa earlier this year. And I, I joked with him that he wanted to work in space doing computer stuff. So I said, OK, it starts here. Let's start getting you towards your dream job. So I, I called him to come along and help me build the app. So he came over from Finland and stayed with me. And then at the event itself, we put a request out on Twitter and then Ketan Matmujar joined us. 
and he's actually a brilliant app coder, so that was perfect. And then a bit later on, Dario Lofish, who happens to be a designer, joined the team. So we had like this perfect complement of skills. Everyone got on really well, and it, it was just incredible. So much fun. So most inspiring app. Where are you going to take it from here? Because last time that we spoke, there were all these potential opportunities that we heard from Chris Gerty from, from NASA. Um, you're now in this position of potentially taking it further. Well, obviously, the, the main aim is to take it to space. And I was very excited. In fact, it was just the week that Tim Peake was selected or assigned to a mission. And he saw me tweeting that we'd won and said, this is brilliant. Now I'll never miss a picture in space. So hopefully we'll have our very own Tim Peake using the T-10 app in space and perhaps we can get up there before then. Let's hope so indeed. And congratulations again on being one of NASA's five winners after a competition involving more than 9,000 people across 44 countries. And that's the Space Boffins podcast. It's produced by Boffin Media in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We'll be back in a month, but do follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And in the meantime, thanks for listening.